Welcome to The Common Rounds. Medical education for medical students by medical students. Hello, it's me again. Today we'll discuss seizures. And to start off, we'll define what it is and talk about the classification, epilepsy, the causes and the effects on the patient. Then we'll talk about how to diagnose the cause and finally how to manage people who suffer from epilepsy. As always, we'll begin with some definitions. A seizure is a result of abnormal electric activity in the brain's neural network. This could be a result of asynchronous activity. Seizures can be provoked in any individual in certain, uh, certain conditions such as electrolyte abnormalities or hypoglycemia. But in a subset of people, seizures can occur without an initiating event. In this case, the condition is called epilepsy. The term ictil refers to the period of a seizure. The period immediately after a seizure is referred to as post-ictil and the period between episodes of seizures is referred to as the interictal period. According to the World Health Organization, epilepsy is the most common neurological disorder and about 70% of the targeted population respond to treatment, which makes it very important to sort of diagnose the condition so that an appropriate intervention can be introduced so that we could avoid or reduce further episodes. Now let's talk about the classification. A common classification used is from the International League Against Epilepsy available at their website and it should be considered that these classifications are often revised and changed and improved and they differ on the criteria used. But using this uh, classification system, they can be divided into three different subsets. Focal seizures, which are also called partial seizures, are limited to one hemisphere of the brain or they could be generalized, which is a second subset and that involves the entire brain. The third subset is unclassified because they're a little bit more complex than dividing into just focal or generalized. Seizures may begin as focal and evolve into generalized ones. Let's discuss the focal seizures first. They can be differentiated on the basis of cognitive effects. A simple partial seizure will not affect the cognitive function of the sufferer, but described based on the clinical signs during the seizure. For example, they could be motor with involuntary bodily movements and speech. If accompanied by sensations of tingling instead of motor uh, signs, such as auditory or visual distortions, they are sensory seizures. Autonomic seizures would be accompanied by reactions that are normally under aut um, autonomic control, like salivating or sweating. An aura and a seizure would be linked with, a, with psychiatric symptoms, such as the feeling of deja vu or distortions in time or hallucinations, visual or auditory. The symptoms seen in a seizure can be attributed to the areas in the brain that's affected. For example, if the left leg is twitching, the affected region of the brain is most likely to be the region in the motor cortex that controls the left leg. The regions near that cortical structure may also start to begin to show an effect. In fact, many symptoms have been linked to a particular region inside of the brain. When the motor regions of the brain are involved, the seizure may be clonic, which is a state of repeated activation and relaxation of the muscles involved. If the effect on the seizure seems to spread from one region to a larger portion of the body, it's referred to as a Jacksonian march. If associated with paralysis of a region of the body after the seizure, it's called Todd's paralysis. And then we can move on to talk about the complex focal seizures, which involve some sort of cognitive deficit, such as loss of consciousness and confusion after the event. So just to quickly summarize, we've talked about focal seizures, which is the first subset, and they are simple and complex focal seizures. Now we'll move on to generalized seizures, which as we mentioned earlier, involve both cerebral hemispheres. The first one we'll discuss is absence seizures, which could be typical or atypical. The typical ones manifest as an absence from the bodies, uh, so to speak. The sufferer seems to remain frozen in position and 
completely unresponsive to the environment. They last for a few seconds and do not have any effects after the seizure is lapsed. They could also have very minor twitches in the body during the seizure. But because of subtlety, the sufferer might actually not realize that they have been affected. One way of inciting these seizures is hyperventilation. They are most common in younger children and can occur multiple times a day. They can also affect school performance and is usually picked up by teachers or peers. They tend to remit spontaneously. Atypical absent seizures are more severe versions of the typical one and may be associated with other neurological deficits. They are also usually less responsive to anticonvulsant drugs. The distinction is made on an EEG which we will talk about in a little bit. The other subtypes of generalized seizures are tonic and clonic. Just like we've talked about before in focal seizures, clonic is when the limb seems to be jerking as the muscles repeatedly contract and relax. A tonic seizure, on the other hand, will manifest as a sort of stiffening as the sufferer um, freezes up and the affected muscular pathways contract. The respiratory muscles can be affected during breathing and the jaw can snap shut and the patient might bite their tongue. But because the respiratory muscles are affected, the sufferer might seem to stop breathing during uh, a tonic seizure. The tonic-clonic seizure is the most common type that occurs with external factors like electrolyte disturbances and in this subtype the seizure begins as a tonic seizure which evolves into a, becoming a clonic one. As the seizure begins to involve more waves of relaxation, continence might be affected. Post-ictally, the patient may suffer from confusion, headaches, lethargy or muscle pain. Then atonic seizures as the name suggests is an episode of loss of postural tone which could lead to the patient collapsing if affected for long enough, presenting a risk of injury from the fall. And finally, myoclonic seizures are manifested by sudden jerks by a limb or body part due to contraction of muscles. They can occur in a condition called juvenile myoclonic epilepsy. A YouTube channel by the Youth on the Move Kenya does a fantastic job explaining how these seizures affect patients and what we could do as bystanders in the, bystanders in the situation. I would highly recommend them and I'll put them up on our YouTube channel too. As mentioned earlier, some focal seizures can evolve to affect the entire brain to produce a generalized seizure, mostly the tonic-clonic type. In these cases, patients may describe the sensation of an aura or other manifestations of a focal seizure, while they may have been witness to have, been, to have suffered a generalized seizure. And then finally, there's a group of seizures, which is a third unclassified one, and they can present like a mixture of all the seizures that we've already described. Now we can talk about the causes of seizures, which are very broad and include trauma, functional disturbances due to strokes, ischemia, or hypoxia. They could be a result of systematic abnormalities such as hypoglycemia, electrolyte derangements, high fever. They could also be a result of toxins or infections in, the, in conditions like meningitis, encephalitis, or uh, central nervous system abscesses. They can also be a result of withdrawal from intoxicants like alcohol or barbiturates. They can also be a result of congenital developmental malformations also due to hereditary causes. Like we've already mentioned, epilepsy is a condition where a person is prone to suffering episodic seizures. While there is a genetical basis to the disorder, an initiating factor such as trauma may change the threshold of excitability in the neural networks of the brain, which further predispose the sufferer from episodes of seizures. Now we can move on to the diagnosis. The underlying cause of seizures is very important to elucidate mainly so that the management can be focused and timely offered, offered to prevent further episodes. As always, the history is very important as it will help to create an action plan to find the underlying cause. A full description of the seizure episode is important, including the sufferer's experience and an eyewitness account. 
A witness account is useful, especially in conditions like absence seizures where the patient may not even realize something's happened. Sometimes syncope or psychosis episodes can be mistaken for a seizure. The age of the patient also offers some clues about the cause of the seizure. As with most neurological conditions, older populations are more likely to get seizures as a result of strokes or neurodegenerative conditions. Infants and younger children may suffer a seizure under high body temperatures called a febrile seizure, but it's still important to rule out electrolyte disturbances or hypoglycemia and at the same time keep in mind that infection may also cause uh, seizure, seizures. Tumors can also cause seizures and occur in most ages. A history of head trauma can give away the initiating factor and a list of medications or drug use can be implicated in, condition, in the condition. A family history can suggest an inherited cause. The physical exam may not be very useful, but it's helpful in investigating any neurological abnormality in the brain that may also cause other deficits. It can suggest a pathological lesion in the brain that can be investigated. It's also helpful in trying to identify any injuries sustained during the seizure, which can help the person or the carers to ensure safety during the seizure. In younger children, a developmental history could rule out CNS developmental abnormalities. After this, laboratory studies are essential to consider metabolic or electrolyte disturbances, including glucose, calcium, potassium, and magnesium levels. Liver and kidney function should also be tested to investigate if the cause is due to something like hepatic encephalopathy or kidney function decline. If an infection is suspected, blood cultures or lumbar puncture may also be performed. Further on, it's important to perform an electroencephalogram or an EEG on patients suspected of suffering from epilepsy. An EEG measures the electrical activity in the brain through electrodes in the scalp. The biggest challenge to this is that some abnormal activity may not be detected in the EEG and that unless the EEG is a long-term 24-hour monitor, the seizure may be initiated, have to be initiated by sleep deprivation or hyperventilation, which is not usually very comfortable for the patient. During a seizure, the EEG will pick up abnormal electrical discharges with patterns that may be useful in identifying the classification of the seizure or sort of localizing the lesion. Finally, imaging is required to locate tumors or the sign of any previous injury or vascular disease, like a stroke. To finish off this episode that's gone longer than I expected, actually, let's discuss the treatment in or the management in people who are known to have seizures. The first and foremost consideration is to find the underlying cause and try and correct that. If there's an identification of a precipitating factor, such as changes in light or sleep deprivation, it's a good idea to discuss them with the patient so that you could think of ways to reduce uh, exposure to the trigger and hence prevent further episodes. Another consideration is uh, the possibility of people suffering from epilepsy to drive and different countries and different states have different rules. Then you also need to consider workplace safety for people who suffer from seizures and the effects that that could carry on to the workplace. You also need to consider pregnancy and lactation and you also need to consider safety during the episodes because a lot of these seizures come without a warning or with very little time. Then finally I'll quickly touch on the drugs uh, that are used to treat uh, epilepsy which are also referred to as anti-epileptic drugs. Now just as I had mentioned in the beginning of the episode, 70% of these uh, people with epilepsy uh, respond to treatment and drugs and 30% don't. In those 30% it's important to it's important to consider surgery where removal of the diseased part of the brain may be therapeutic. In these cases, it needs to, uh, you need to weigh the benefit of removing this brain lesion 
with the risks of uh, loss of function in that particular brain area. Now I'll quickly talk about the drugs. The first and foremost drug that, that is recommended is carbamazepine and is very frequently used as the uh, first line, small doses and increasing as required. This is thought to work on sodium channels, slowing down action pro uh, potential propagation in the brain's neural network, which is the mainstay of all the drugs that are used uh, against epilepsy is to reduce the propagation of an action potential to stop the, uh, the initiation of a seizure or propagating it further to becoming a generalized seizure. Another drug that is used is phenytoin, which is also thought to block these sodium channels and reduce excitability. Lamitrogen is another drug uh, quite popular and gabapentin, which is a calcium channel blocker, uh, also is used to reduce excitability. Pregbalin is also a calcium channel blocker which reduces excitability and has a, another role in neuropathic pain reducing the excitability of um, neurons that carry pain towards the brain. Then you have benzodiapines which are, which are GABA agonists and if you remember from Hamid and Andy's talk earlier, uh, GABA is an inhibitory neurotransmitter in the brain and reduces the, the excitability of neurons. And finally, barbiturates are also used sometimes. That's it for the episode. Thank you very much for listening if you've made it this far. As always, feedback is always welcome and appreciated. And hope to see you next time. Our episode today was put together by our executive producer, Gautam, and our core editor, Cindy. For notes, elective experiences, and much more study resources, visit our website on thecommonrounds.wordpress.com or visit us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. If you like our episodes, please subscribe and rate us on iTunes. It means a lot to us. You've been listening to The Common Rounds. I'm Hamid. And I'm Andy. And we'll see you next time. See you next time.